From the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, I'm Robert Caceres, and this is The Reframe. Today's guest is Dr. Marissa Davila. Dr. Davila is an assistant professor in the Department of Counseling and School Psychology at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. Dr. Davila specializes in working with couples and helping people struggling with trauma, and she spoke with me about how she strives to blend creative and spontaneous approaches with evidence-based practices. You kind of have an idea. This is our concern. This is what we've been working on. Here's our treatment plan goals. Um, But folks can come in with (laughs) a plethora and throw you curveballs. And so being prepared to um, meet them where they are and still continue to scaffold that growth intentionally, ethically and intentionally. Make sure it's evidence-based. That's a big constantly sort of on my soapbox about that with my students. Yeah, I just, that seems like the counseling process, the art of the counseling process is being able to be creative in the moment, be, you know, flexible and and yet scientific because we know where we're going and what we're doing. Welcome to The Reframe. Over the next hour, you'll hear Dr. Davo discuss her strategies for nurturing self-reflection and ongoing professional growth and describe the roles that humility and transparency play in her clinical work. She also reflects on the challenges associated with being an early career academic and explains how the generosity of mentors helped her to build a successful private practice. So many wonderful practitioners in my area kind of have this idea of paying it forward and they wanted to mentor people into owning their own practice people have who did trial and error in this direction and this direction and I just tried to learn and they were so gracious and gave me their knowledge and that was just so so beneficial. Marissa began our conversation by discussing how her childhood influenced her path to the counseling profession. My journey into the counseling profession I think for most people probably similarly um, started really young really kind of that wounded healer phenomenon I think I've always kind of been interested in humans and how do I help someone feel good Um, and then so during undergrad I sort of studied psychology as most folks people do and really starting to then when I was getting ready to graduate and thinking about grad school um, really wondered what's the difference between a counselor and a psychologist then and really diving into the professional identity and what they do and how they conceptualize humans, right? Um, And so really looking at that difference, that's where it sort of solidified to me that I think like these folks, right? That this might be my home. Um, And then I went and met with some department chairs for master's counseling programs, and one who just, uh, Dr. Grace Mims, she was just phenomenal. So I was left that meeting just sold. And so went there, um, studied that from my master's, and I just kind of found myself after classes um, being excited rather than really tired or looking at this like, oh, God, I have to go to class again. I mean, I would be driving home and sort of had more questions. And so I just found that I was really, really excited about it. And that was a good thing. So um, then as I was pursuing um, or getting finished with my master's, some of my faculty member there really encouraged me to go on to a doctoral program. Um, and I still really did feel like there was so much more to know, um, particularly getting supervision in the state that I was at. They didn't have supervision designations and, you know, advanced trainings. And so it still sort of felt like um, there were some wonderful practitioners and supervisors, but it's like I was missing something. Right. And so um, I attended ACEs and realized, oh, my gosh, there's gobs and gobs of information forever that I still 
want to learn. And so I decided to go on to uh, my doctoral studies at Kent State University um, and just sort of mold and really identify into that scientific practitioner or practitioner researcher sort of identity and how do I use research um, to guide my practices and really wanting to um, sort of, you know, you can help clients one-on-one, beautiful, love that, um, but sort of this idea of, gosh, if I can touch students and supervisors and kind of mold them into being really quality practitioners, the change effect, sort of that ripple that was possibility was just sort of exciting to me. And so um, dived, you know, dove into more of the supervision side and obviously teaching. Um, and so, but what I love about it doing this is that now you get to, or I get to, um, have kind of the best of both worlds. I get to practice a little bit on the side, train, research, do a little bit of supervision. Um, and so continue to grow and just be immersed in the, you know, the literature and the field. And so, to me, it all comes back to it just felt like home. It felt exciting, and I still really love it. So so much of what you just described to me is both inspiring and daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't help but think about like some of the narratives of my students or some of my own narratives where there is so much to know or so much to be curious about. Mm-hmm. And I think about for myself so much further to grow. And how have you balanced kind of those desires Mm -hmm. and those curiosities with where you're at in your career in a way that's allowed you to continue to feel energized and inspired Mm -hmm. rather than maybe defeated or just like worn down? Um, I really try to and hope that I will continue to push myself because I'm still pretty young into this faculty career. It's only my, my third year. And so hopefully be around for a while. Um, but I really hope that I will look at every, if I go to a conference or, um, dive into a new research project or something, really look at it like, oh gosh, I don't, I don't know everything. I feel like sometimes we can get advanced in skills and get comfortable in our competence and that's wonderful, but to know and sort of stay humble and curious to just stay curious and excited about it. And also to really challenge if I have any sort of unrealistic expectations that I should know (laughs) everything uh, and being okay to say, you know, even to my students, gosh, I I don't know that. That's a beautiful question. Let's, let's research that together. And so um, to me, staying curious means kind of making sure that I'm always in a state of wanting to learn from others and sort of contribute. And um, I'm pretty motivated by solidifying our profession as well. I'm really proud that I'm a counselor. And so I really hope that you know, to collaborate with other folks who are, that's going to really, I hope, keep me not um, intimidated, but excited to go after it, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. As I love okay. how that you describe that, that there's a deep pride in what you do, but mm-hmm. because of that responsibility and because of the seriousness of the work that we do, it necessitates that you conduct yourself in a way that is humble and is curious. Could you speak about ways that you've maybe exhibited humility mm-hmm. in working with your clients? Because I know that a lot of times, whether it's novice clinicians or even more seasoned people want to have that appearance of, you know, I have the answers or I am competent. And it's hard to admit <laughs> when 
maybe something is out of your core competency. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, I My approach is pretty transparent clinically. Um, I, I kind of tell them, um, you know, if I ask you to try something at home or I really want to educate them throughout the process, you know. Um, and so part of that is also then discussing what do they expect out of counseling and what do I expect out of counseling? Um, because I find that a lot of clients maybe think, hey, you're going to give me all this advice. You're so knowledgeable. You're the expert. And I really view it as empowering them. You know, I'm a change agent. I'm not giving advice. And so, you know, just being able to say and reflect it back and um, be a be a person authentic with them, right, and be excited that they get to leave <laughs> in a good way. It's bittersweet sometimes, but termination is a wonderful thing. That's so wonderful. Um, so I think from day one, I, I that's my kind of orientation to people is that I'm there to empower them, encourage them, um, help them reach their goals, not to be some sort of finger pointing down, especially in parenting and working with families, I find uh, nobody wants to hear if they're a bad parent. <laughs> so really encouraging people of what's going well, really postmodern. I think too, like no counselor wants to hear that they're a bad counselor. And yet there are times where we might, well intentioned as it may be, take a misstep. Are mm-hmm. there times in which clients have had to say to you that didn't work so well, or I wish that would have been done differently. And you had to respond to that in humility. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I, you know, maybe not in terms of a direct sort of intervention that I've done where they're saying, oh, I didn't like that. Or I mean, homework maybe or something. If they come back and they say that just didn't work for me. I'm like, okay, let's, let's keep on trying. Um, But I find often, for example, sometimes in couples, if they, um, one is feeling really defeated and really questioning, you know, terminating the relationship and sort of, ethically still working with both and um, sometimes that sort of frustration and and I just process it with them I just really do Um, and if I ever find that I'm maybe wasn't on my A game the way I was expecting I really sort of like to reflect on what I could have done better what I feel like I did well and sort of move on and continue to try to improve and not let it sort of beat me up forever and ever because um, not everybody's a perfect fit clinically, so that's okay. Now, what do you say that that's something that you reflect on? Is that something that you do in your internal introspection mm-hmm. and processing, or is that something that you will articulate to the client or to the couple? Or maybe both? But, yeah, both. I mean, it'll be both and maybe even consultation, right? Really sort of processing, checking to make sure. It's, so when I think I reflect internally about what I could have done better, it's not sort of just beating myself up and any shame or anything, really sort of trying to grow. Um, but absolutely, I will address that with a couple if possible, um, if needed. I really haven't had to, you know, sort of paradoxically, sometimes I've said, gosh, you know, I have to apologize to you. I really rush this and sort of on purpose have done that um, approach, if that makes sense. Um, I can't think of an example right off the top of my head right now about, but certainly with, um, I think, one that pop up, um, sooner in my mind are with students. Um, teaching's pretty new to me. And so in gatekeeping is necessity, but not it doesn't always feel good. And so how to have those critical conversations with students and own up if I made a mistake because, you know, it's almost a little bit of that higher expectation that I should have all the coursework totally ready. And yeah, and so I, I pretty much 
use humor <laughs> and just own it and, and process through it and try to model that how to navigate this and problem solve ethically. So I would imagine that's maybe a, a rare or uncommon experience for students. How does that impact them to hear their professor like just have like radical ownership of a misstep or say, like, hey, I could have done this better? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I sort of observe that we can get into some lively conversations. Um, I have observed, you know, maybe some defenses slowing down, particularly when you do have to have sort of a critical conversation about, hey, um, this wasn't handled ethically or that your skills aren't where they need to be and let me help you or so that piece. But I would hope again that they would um, take that with them and remember that this we are all, especially in counseling, I always like to emphasize we're always in a state of needing to learn. I hope that students graduate still like hungry for literature because it's going to change. Hopefully it's going to advance. It's going to, our knowledge is going to expand. And um, so I hope that they leave wanting to learn and and noticing that, okay, if my faculty also don't know everything, it's going to be okay, but they're trying, you know, it's, it's okay to not know everything, but I also sort of expect, try, try to learn fill that gap you've expressed a great you know love and desire to immerse yourself in the literature but also you've worked very diligently to contribute to the literature would you speak about kind of your research interests specifically as they relate to couples Mm -hmm. and monogamy sure absolutely thank you um i kind of smiled when you said diligently because i'm trying you know (laughs) get those publications up and that sort of stuff but um my passion really started for looking at um, researching couples and monogamy during my doctoral work um, and and reading, 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 um, and sort of looking at how do we work with couples with infidelity because it's very common. There's some wonderful um, interventions and theories and all sorts of stuff that are significant and help, help heal. And so it sort of clicked in my mind, though, about my second year in my doc program after reading and immersing myself in the literature of, um, gosh, why are we looking at it so um, reactive, right? And that's a pretty medical model counseling anyway, um, when this could be prevented. And so not everybody experiences infidelity who practice monogamy. Of course, that's not the only paradigm for a relationship. Um but so trying to understand for those folks who successfully maintain it, how? Because um, I sort of think that most people probably just get the message of just don't do it. Just don't cheat. But it's probably not, you know, sit down pre-wedding night or whatever and say, okay, here's this, here's this, here's this skill. Don't do, you know, um, I don't know if you work with couples, if you've found a similar thing. So it's sort of anecdotal. Um, and so that's what really got me interested, dove more into the research to see, has anybody looked at this yet, you know? Um, and there wasn't a substantial amount. And so that led me to having to conduct a qualitative study for my dissertation to see, you know, what is this phenomenon and see if there's a theory around it. Um, and so that's what I did. And a lot of those protective factors really connected with current literature, which is great, but also seem to add to some. And so um, currently I'm trying to bridge that into more of a quantitative treatment approach and looking at how do we measure that and seeing can this sort of theory that I've 
found actually help people maintain it more long term. And, and, and in essence, hopefully prevent a traumatic experience of infidelity. You acknowledge that the research that you did is, you know, qualitative. And as a qualitative researcher myself, I just remember back to my professor saying, like, you know, this is valid and it provides, like, you know, <clears throat> descriptions in people's own words of their lived experience, but it is not generalizable, exactly. you know, to the public. Yeah. And yet at the same time, I think we can speak anecdotally, we can speak qualitatively. There's still something useful and fertile there. Mm-hmm. And so for those out there who do couples work, because we do take that proactive stance of wanting to identify strengths and right. um, help promote them for couples that want to you know, maintain the monogamy that they currently have. What are some of those protective factors that counselors might want to be aware of just to be on the lookout for that, even though it's not been empirically validated right. that, you know, if these are in place, couples will maintain monogamy? Um, so the main premise, though, that by far um, a lot of the, well, all of the participants who gave me their, their narratives and time and thank them immensely, right, um, was that they maintained it continuously through small efforts in each of these. And that um, what I really found was that you can't really have one of these protective factors in isolation, that there was this, you know, circular dynamic through all of them that really connected. And so that's the core premise to really help. Um, I like to work on helping my couples understand that this is not sort of a big mountain that we're climbing, but just a continual piece together. It's this ever-present really entity, honestly, that these folks really talked about um, for themselves, that it was just my spouse, me, monogamy. <laughs> um, they, it was always there. So uh, the first um, is having a secure attachment or emotional bond. That makes so much sense, right? I expected that one, from, of course. Um, the second is pr- uh, practicing cognitive and behavioral boundaries. So you know, establishing boundaries with someone else through those cues of say, hey, you know, my guard's up. I'm I'm taking sort of a piece. But also um, I found surprisingly that a lot of them did cognitive work to really reorient themselves if um, they were feeling tempted or to really challenge that and bring themselves. Kind of what Gottman talks about, turning in um, so that that fit. Um Values and beliefs which support monogamy, which some people might uh, quickly attribute to religiosity, um, but it wasn't just that. That was kind of a component, but really surrounding their lives. I mean, people even talked about um, purposely fostering like friendships and um, networks that were monogamous. And so I actually had somebody who, a participant who was a um, pastoral counselor, and he even told me I'm not monogamous because of my faith. And that was just kind of groundbreaking for me because I think a lot of people um, attribute religiosity and monogamy one in one, and it's really not shown to be the only thing. So that's one. Um, One I was very surprised was practicing congruence. And I don't think I would have probably had that protective factor given if I had a different sample because it was a bunch of sort of counselors and a couple people were not, but that sort of language is very Rogerian. So, but practicing congruence and maintaining um, behaving in a way that they would be proud of and their spouse would be proud of was one. Um, And obviously sex and communication, um, keeping that up and keeping that lively um, and then communicate um, sorry coping individually and also coping as a couple so again a lot of these 
to me fit the literature and then some seemed to add just a little bit to it. So that was sort of exciting, but that they all were super um, interconnected, influenced by and influencing the other factor, all grounded in the small and consistent efforts. So you did that qualitative research to almost generate like more seeds that you can then uh, plant and, you know, just allow to grow through quantitative research. What are kind of those next steps for you that you're really looking to dig more deeply into? Yeah. Um, so I have devised some curriculum around it and I did some um, Delphi methodology to see how valid the curriculum is from, you know, to experts in the field, what seems to be missing what's not. Um, and so currently we are, I have a research partner and we're, we're looking at um, creating an instrument and validating that to see if we actually can measure these <laughs> effectively. That'd be good. Um, and so, and obviously making sure they correlate with other instruments that are there. Um, and so then eventually, hopefully I would love to run really sort of experimental having a control group, sort of treatment as usual, and then folks to um, either receive sort of this curriculum or to train practitioners on how to infuse it into their work and seeing um, longitudinally if this really does help people maintain monogamy as a, as a skill to kind of fall back on or multiple skills. So, Earlier you referenced how as couples counselors we may encounter infidelity mm -hmm. a lot, and that was part of the genesis of you developing this research interest. And one of the common things I hear a lot about couples work is, oh, I could never do that, or that's so hard, or like, please take my clients because mm -hmm. I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. And yet, like, I know from my own experience, and I can tell with the passion that you're speaking, like couples work is like such a great it's the best. <laughs> opportunity and such an engaging professional endeavor. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell me more about like what you love about couples counseling? Mm. I love the intensity. I love it, it, the speed. Sometimes you really can go quickly. And I think that's sort of what a um, maybe brand new practitioner feels overwhelmed about. Um, and I love that. <laughs> I feel like if you get stuck working with couples, you might be operating from a linear perspective, a very interesting perspective. And so I love that you have to go systemic and enter into that. Um, and I also just really deeply cherish that they've let me do that. You know what I mean? This, this couple is here oftentimes to sort of a Hail Mary. I have not yet had somebody who's like, oh, we're just doing really, really well and we just want to keep this up and just a little checkup, right? It's oftentimes um, this is it. We have been at, you know, ends for 10 plus years and uh, we're really considering divorce. And so that's sort of heavy on the table. And so I, I kind of like that um, challenge, not that I want to impose that they have to stay together by any means, but that's sort of fun um, to, to be there and to hear them say, yeah, okay, we'll come back next week. You know what I mean? That first one, it, that challenge is fun. Um, so I, I just love it's so rewarding when you see that shift in the intimacy. I really love to start to see when couples turn to each other, literally, and stop talking through me or having me facilitate and and just kind of cut me out, the middleman, and turn and have some sort of just a, a hand touch is just wonderful. It's just seeing that intimacy and restructuring happening and what they're doing in that moment. I'm like, yes, okay, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm smiling just hearing you describe that because that's one of my favorite things too, that you know, there is the first session where it's 
creating that buy-in mm-hmm. and almost giving enough hope or enough substance to say like, hey, this is worth your time and worth coming back next week. Mm-hmm. But then to continue to do the work and, you know, maybe we're giving those directives to invite one partner to look and say to the other partner something that maybe they would feel more comfortable saying to us. But then the privilege and like the joy of getting to point out to a couple, like, did you notice what just happened mm-hmm. naturally? Mm-hmm. And by like, mm-hmm. just your inclination, like you mm-hmm. turned without me having to direct you, exactly. you reached out. And those like might seem so like seemingly insignificant to like someone on the outside. And yet like they're so, they're so monumental. Profound. Oh, they are. They're so profound, particularly around a very sensitive an intimate moment and we get to process, hey, you actually can do this. It's not me who's special. Look at you two. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and your relationship and what you're doing right now and let's break this down. Um, I just, I love those those little moments. Yeah. Well, not little, but turning points. Definitely. Another one of my favorite parts of couples counseling is in the initial phases where things might seem hopeless or things that might be hoped for seem so far off. Yes. And then over time, the couple then finds in their present reality that they're living the thing that they never thought they'd have. And it's almost taken for granted now. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, let me stop you right there. Mm-hmm. Like, are you aware that you just said this, you know, without thinking, without recognition? Do you understand that a month ago or two months ago, you never thought that would yeah. happen? Yeah. In fact, you told me you would, maybe would never, right? And here we are sort of, yeah, it's phenomenal really powerful. I want to just back up a bit. I mean, I'm, my hands are getting clammy just thinking about like that first session right now with a couple that's mm-hmm. in crisis, like coming in just 10 out of 10 activated. <laughs> and maybe that sense that we can have, you know, at a clinician in any phase of their career, but like for both of us who are still relatively new in our career to have that pressure to feel like, well, I got to give them something if I they're going to come back. I know. Yeah. How do you balance that in a way that allows you to be present and attend to the needs of the clients in a way that maybe doesn't mean that they have to come back, Mm -hmm. but you're just providing for them what they might need in that That moment moment. on that day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Multiple things. I think I would probably say I start by respecting that um, I'm entering into their, their relationship, their world, their system, briefly and so to kind of honor that right and to stay neutral to not sort of take that for granted right that they're they're letting me into that so honoring and respecting that um and just again really knowing that um couples and people um are pretty resilient they're pretty darn resilient and so um if they got something that they needed in four sessions wonderful um and we'll part happily right or gosh even if they're saying um this just doesn't fit for me great let me find somebody who does fit for you and really not taking that personal i'm trying to learn from it i think if that was a recurring thing (laughs) then maybe i would look at myself and my skills but you know every now and then sort of a piece and that's okay um and then i think that i am still really I encourage folks, I think my students particularly to not to get too stuck on, you know, developmentally their first experiences. Oh my gosh, what am I going to say? Clients in front of me stop talking. So what can I say (laughs) next? And then they kind of move forward and it's the all about the client and they're not really thinking about themselves or the relationship therapeutically. 
going on. And so really to keep scaffolding their knowledge and that experience um, to understand how am I entering into this? And, it, and does that make sense? And really oh, yeah. um, helping restructure or what have you. Um, remaining aware kind of this multidimensional piece to see as clearly as possible. I always talk with students. I love, I don't know if you ever played sports, but yeah, it's, I find it to be fascinating because when you're on the court or on the field, whatever, things are so tunnel visioned, right? Your perspective is this, this, this running this play on the sidelines. It's everything. And so sort of being patient with ourself and trying to get those multiple perspectives, <laughs> you know, step onto the sidelines if possible. Um, and just, yeah, going with where they need to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine what you're describing, but because I played tennis, no one came to watch our sporting <laughs> events, so there was nothing going on in the sidelines. But yeah, I appreciate That's that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> Oftentimes, because of the sensitive nature of couples' work and because it can be heated, things do escalate. Yeah. What's your style and philosophy and approach to dealing with those tense moments? Do you mm-hmm. permit fighting or mm-hmm. under what circumstances might you allow things to escalate in intensity, perhaps for a therapeutic purpose? Yeah, I don't, I'm not one who purposely provokes like fighting um, as like maybe like Carl would <laughs> burst that out. But um, if they're really hurtful, dynamics going on and early on in the process I sort of jump in and try to slow it down quickly flag on the play five yard penalty (laughs) bring it back let's process this but if we've also they're they're kind of making their strides and if I we're seeing sort of the same um, patterns over and over sometimes I'll sit back for a minute and observe and then give feedback and process what's happening so it sort of depends on it's not intense issues or emotionality or anything that I would shut down with a couple. I I would want to do that. I would shut down if there's ever abuse happening, right? If there's verbal stuff or it seems sort of physical um, or if they're just not maybe at that developmental themselves or as a couple to take that on because I'm a big proponent of it's just sort of that fascinating kind of I want you close but I'm scared push you away sort of emotionally focused couples stuff. And so I really like to explore with couples of if we're going to get there, um, we have to respect each other's stuff and not kind of use that as ammunition. And so if we're not ready for that, then maybe I'll slow it down, if that makes sense. But I'm not scared of the intensity. Let's bring it on, right? (laughs) Uh, No, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. So we're actually recording this uh, at the 2020 IMFC conference in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And as you talk about that, I'm thinking uh, about a presentation that Dr. Rick Balkin gave yesterday where he talked about, you know, oftentimes our clients, and I'll think specifically now about couples, Mm -hmm. come in maybe feeling great and leave crying and Mm -hmm. feeling awful, or Mm -hmm. a couple could come in fighting and leave feeling great. And you mentioned that couples work is not linear. Mm -hmm. Um, What was that process like for you as you gained more experience, just coming to terms with and becoming more comfortable with the non-linear, messy, systemic nature of doing couples work? It's a very good question. Um, Well, I think it really goes back to, again, when I was 
in classes and my most excited was learning about couples and family and the systemic perspective. Um, I love and respect all sorts of those linear models, wonderful, evidence-based. Um, but for me, it, it really hit my worldview um, and trying to understand that um, you can't just have, nobody's in isolation. So uh, it goes back to how I think and conceptualize and continue to try. It's pretty deeply ingrained, this sort of linear piece. But one of my favorite things in teaching marriage and family therapy at my university is seeing students continue to try to wrestle with this. They kind of like, all right, I get what you're saying. Then if we talk about a case study, they're like, all the problems are <laughs> surrounding around this, right? This one person or this diagnosis or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I actually recently asked them to um, map out their this systemic interaction from this case um, with, like, literally get in it and, and tangibly, concretely try to work through it and see. So it's kind of interesting. Um, so I guess coming to terms with it is trying to remember to stay there and consider what is really going on, get get feedback, consult all the, I consult all the time because um, I'm still pretty new and there's practitioners who've been doing it for so long. I want to continue to learn from them. Um, and coming to terms that it's not, um, again, not being scared of that intensity, um, I, you know, kind of that new student or new practitioner might be like, I don't want to get my clients mad at me. I don't want to hurt them. Um, if I If I frustrate a client, I just reflect that and let's process that. What's going on right now, right? Um, not that you want to purposely be unethical or culturally insensitive or anything like that, but gosh, sometimes if they're presenting a certain way with you, the chances are they might be outside as well. So just kind of being prepared in an unstructured but intentional <laughs> interaction, if that makes sense. I love that phrase, unstructured but intentional. How has that played out in your clinical work or how have you observed that over time and just, you know, your way of being as a clinician? To me, again, I, I don't know. It's, it is all of it. I mean, um, I suppose some, some are pretty structured like EMDR or something like that, or maybe some sort of CBT, but even I, I pretty much think that you need to be prepared. And that's sort of the fun of counseling is that you you kind of have an idea. This is our concerns. This is what we've been working on. Here's our treatment plan goals. Um, but folks can come in with <laughs> a plethora and throw you curveballs. And so being prepared to um, meet them where they are and still continue to scaffold that growth um, intentionally, ethically and intentionally. Make sure it's evidence-based. That's a big constantly sort of on my soapbox about that with my students. Um yeah, I just, that seems like the counseling process, the art of the counseling process is being able to be creative in the moment, be, you know, flexible and, and yet scientific because we know where we're going and what we're doing. Yeah. It's not just like, oh yeah, whatever happens, happens. Yeah, right. Like, but it's like you, you're equipped, you have done the research, you've practiced the skills. It's just when and how to implement those at a moment that is in the best interest of the client. Exactly. You referenced EMDR mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. I know that's another interest or uh, growing area of your research. Yeah. Talk to me about what studying that has meant to you and how that's informed your research and your clinical work. Um, it has been, I was, truth be told, one of those folks who was pretty skeptical of EMDR. Uh, sort of like, I want to 
read about this research here. What are we, what are we talking about? It seems kind of like hypnosis. What are we doing? Especially some of the tapping. I was very skeptical. Um, dove into the research. So it's, okay. It's pretty, pretty valid here. Um, went to the training and it's like, okay, this is pretty interesting. And it was one of those trainings that I think, especially if a, if a clinician has, um, say been in school for a long time and you get you're sort of feeling saturated with information this one is that seems to really be new to some degree so obviously it's connected to some theories but um so that was interesting and i've been infusing that with trauma particularly um working with couples with if one has experienced trauma right in their past and how that can sort of influence their attachment and sex and just all sorts of stuff. And so to not address trauma would be really disheartening and not good, I think. And so um, emotionally focused couples therapy is wonderful for that. But I've found kind of um, infusing trauma, like EMDR work with a couple if they're safe um, and then facilitating attachment formation afterwards and processing that has been pretty powerful. Um, not everybody wants to do it because they're in a very vulnerable place. And so I certainly fully inform them and ask them to think about it and really want them to have their choice in that. And if they don't, you know, either referring out then for individual EMDR or, you know, proceeding where it needs to go. But um, it can be quite interesting. So there might be someone out there who's listening who finds himself in a similar situation as yourself. I just got out of school, mm -hmm. I'm very busy. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm looking to make money now, not spend more money. And yet, like you've sought out additional trainings and they might see that as, you know, an impediment to seeking out additional trainings mm -hmm. when they've already established themselves as pretty educated and credential person. I know. Yes. What might be your plug or your encouragement for somebody who's on the fence about getting EMDR training or emotionally focused couples mm -hmm. therapy training uh, for why maybe they should? Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, it's an investment and... Um, I think it's worth, because there are some trainings that might be cheaper that aren't potentially backed by an institute or, you know, um, and so it's, it's worth going to the source, getting quality training, um, even if it's 500 extra bucks, uh, go where you know that it's the valid training that needs to happen. I think it's just good to um, have a lot of skills on your tool belt, but at the same time, I hope folks go in being critical consumers um, and wondering where this fits in the rest of our theories and what does it mean to do that. They're pretty prescriptive in terms of their structure, and that's that's if you deviate from that, it's not as effective, and they're pretty forthcoming about that. Um, and so being able to follow that and still sort of integrate it in yours. I just think it, advancing your skills is wonderful. It's an investment. And sometimes perhaps um, agencies or somebody might support them in pursuing that and, you know, saving up for it is okay. But I think it's also all right to go and when time fits or the money fits them. Yeah. I know that you've recently started a private practice. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you've learned in going through that process or some of the things that you wish you would have known that would have made that process a bit more seamless or less stressful? Sure, sure. Um, well, I think a lot of, you know, even some of our students, will, they're curious about the business side of counseling. 
Um, and I don't know, I'm sure maybe there are programs out there that do hit on that heavier, but ours is not one of them right now. It's not part of the heavy cake rep. We do talk about billing and, you know, interdisciplinary teams and all that wonderful stuff. But in terms of literally the business perspective, um, and how to be, yeah, work through that, it's not as richly covered. So I think that can be useful, um, information, but for the most part, I think knowing it's not not that scary, but it's for some folks, not for others, maybe. It's, but I have found it to be pretty fun, pretty great. Um, I really like to be able to control and know things get done and, I don't know, sort of, yeah, managing and making sure, hey, I can do it this way. I can manage this this way. And having that control is wonderful and going where it needs to go. Um, so I, I would hope that if it fits them to not be scared, I feel like... Many people doubt themselves. Don't doubt yourself. You can do it. <laughs> so someone might be out there saying like, you know what? That was a great pep talk. I believe in myself now. But my program didn't give me yeah. the business preparation or I don't have that natural just acumen. Sure. What might be some of those practical things that you've begun to implement that you feel like have increased the success? Mm-hmm. Or the effectiveness of just how your private practice is running itself now? Yeah. Um, I think, number one, really understanding and not being scared of third-party payers and figuring out how to navigate that and do that ethically and and well. Make sure you're not having any insurance fraud or anything like that going on. Um, Marketing and networking is just one of the biggest pieces. I think especially if it's a brand new practitioner whose name maybe isn't recognized, you know, joining your professional organizations, connecting with practitioners across your state. And um, that's where those referrals uh, by far come from, right? I mean, people use Psych Today or whatever, but um, I get so many from colleagues or physicians or so collaborating and staying connected to the field don't kind of get siloed and isolated. I I remember being a a graduate student and wondering very early on sort of what do these organizations do for me, right? Why why join them? I hear my faculty saying join them, um, but sort of a what does it do other than if I want to be a leader sort of a thing, Um, but kind of seeing the value in that, that it's, it's about being connected and even some of that business side, I I think, right? Collaborating. So I think about my own experience of um, living in Louisiana and going to school in New Orleans Mm -hmm. and then moving to North Carolina Mm -hmm. where I knew nobody and nobody knew me. And it was very intimidating to think about there's a need for me to market and there's a need for me to be collaborative and to network. But where do I begin? Mm -hmm. Who do I go talk to? How do I put myself out there? What would be you know, those first steps that are not too intimidating, mm-hmm. but also could potentially pay dividends. Sure. How did you sift through that process to begin just to even know where to begin, frankly? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess trial and error, but I did land at a, um, back in Nebraska where I had completed my master's. So I did know some folks, um, but I guess trial and error. And so I would say, um, just again, seeing value in going to maybe a state, conference and networking or um, I like to go more national at this point but um, staying connected to maybe Kai Sigma Yoda or your you know the local university and seeing if you can collaborate um, I think universities are often wanting to form partnerships and you know there's lots of resources and 
in that way, I think, could be really great, where it's not just academics and clinic, kind of, but we're sort of integrated, and yeah, it could be kind of interesting stuff. And then going about the process of just even forming relationships with physicians, Mm -hmm. that can be a bit more tricky. Mm -hmm. What are some pro tips, if you have any, on how to facilitate that process? Sure. Um, You know, for again, for me, it's a pretty rural place, and so uh, they sort of same name, doctorate. Ooh, here we go. That's that's good. But um, I think sending letters or trying to set up a meeting, let them know what you focus on. Like, for example, and this isn't even all just my information. This is um, a couple of books I've read and things where they talk about if you really want to specialize, for example, with working with children, maybe reaching out to some pediatricians, right? And um, really seeing your market and your niche and holding yourself out as that and continue, I think, to get training in that. If that's sort of your specialty area you want to be, well, you know, keep doing that and, and not be afraid of that. But um, just just reaching out. I think physicians are obviously very busy. But and I think even when you do collaborate and coordinate care, um, you know, making sure you that's a kind of a positive relationship too. Even if it's really brief about this client, this medication, what have you. Um, yeah, they they would recognize you. Um, some I've found too that some hospitals or physicians have like an approved referral list so maybe requesting to be on that can help people it's a trial and error but just Mm -hmm. tenacity too like having to put yourself out there and be willing to not hear back but that over time it'll be a net positive yeah i because i think um so many wonderful practitioners in my area kind of have this idea of paying it forward and they wanted to mentor people into owning their own practice. And so not really looking at it as like, Oh, you're my competition because unfortunately there's great, great need out there. And so, um, you know, connecting with that and I, I look forward to hopefully someday paying it forward and helping someone else. Cause people have who did trial and error in this direction and this direction. And um, I just tried to learn and they were so, gracious and gave me their knowledge and that was just oh so so beneficial and so yeah not being afraid to say I need help how do you do this <laughs> you yeah. seem to balance all of the challenges that are in front of you or just the responsibilities and demands kind of with humor mm-hmm. and with like enthusiasm and that's not an easy thing to do I, I wonder What are ways in which maybe you attend to your own needs or you nurture your own Mm self-care to ensure that you're an effective clinician who's hedging off burnout, to ensure that as a counselor educator, you can remain humble rather than just overly burdened with your many tasks? Like, How how do you do that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Um, I have a colleague and um, they just kind of tease me because they're like, yeah, we just learned and um, not to mess with Marissa's weekends. Like I just purposefully structure self-care first and taking care of myself. And then also I really found into, you know, the faculty world, um, being comfortable saying I can't do that. Um, and kind of being protective of the time that you need at that time. Like I need to have time for research that, you know, and so this, these are my days where I'm writing and I'm reading and I'm, um, and sort of, owning that and and not saying yes I'll do that because you can really there's gobs and gobs of service you can do or what have you and so being intentional about where you're giving your time and that that came from I learned that from my 
wonderful faculty back at Kent State too. They were pretty big on on that. And so I think the same goes then as well for for clients um, because you know you can if you, like me, I only do it you know real part time so that I can focus on my university work. Um, and it's easy, especially when you have those relationships for people to you know, to feel sort of pressured when they say, can you please take this like EMDR case or can you please, um, and sort of, you know, if you can help out, okay, but being okay with saying, I just can't right now, my caseload's full and not extending into Sunday evening or what have you and my, my family time and my self-care time. And so, um, one of the ones I'm working on still is making sure working out is part of that sacred time. (laughs) That's one that goes off, I find, especially for grad students that you can when you get busy that one will go away for me so you know just being intentional and being okay with that we don't have to do everything i want to go back to being able to say no to certain things even though they might be good things yeah i think there's a huge difference between like having supportive faculty who say to you like this is something you need to do and you can yeah as a student and then being in a position as a junior faculty member when presented with something mm-hmm. and mustering up the courage, like A, to recognize like this is going to be too much, but yeah. then B, to utter that. Yeah, right. How has that worked out for you? Because I know there's some people who might be so afraid at the possibility of saying that, that they wouldn't dare. And yet it sounds like it's worked out pretty well for you. Yeah, I've been pretty fortunate at my university that um, they're very clear the you know senior faculty are very clear about um i need to get tenured right and so in a supportive way and so they're not shy to say oh oh, we hear you marissa volunteering for that and we appreciate you for doing that but remember this might be you know better suited for somebody who's tenured and has that time and so we want to protect you and so sort of um I try to really look at that as that they don't think I'm incompetent or <laughs> right, like trying to show show that I can do things, um, but just that they're really trying to protect me and and uh, not take on too much, and so that I am successful long term, right? Sort of like a working on your dissertation. I mean, you really need to carve that out, otherwise it's probably not going to get done. So I really appreciate that they do it. So I don't want to take like say it's all just been me being super assertive. No, they have been really wonderful about, you know, saying, hey, maybe don't do um, our next cake rep report. Like, that's probably not for you. <laughs> Something like that. Um, Would you actually volunteer for that? Yes, I did. Yes. Really? And they said, yeah, we, we appreciate Yeah. So I just also um, was fortunate enough to become a site reviewer because I'm pretty interested in cake rep. And so I'm just trying to learn about that. But yeah, I mean, I was like, I can help. And they said, Thank you, but no. So, which I'm so grateful because, you know, it, that would have been foolish of me. <laughs> so that, but then also if, if there are things I have said, you know, thank you, but I don't think that's the right time. And especially if projects don't seem like they will come to fruition. To me, I think about how much easier it is to almost broach this topic before you're in the job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is hiring season. I'm sure there are some sure. listeners out there who were preparing for interviews and maybe wondering when they're asked, like, oh, do you have any questions for us? Like, what questions to ask? I wonder if that might be a good question to ask, you know, how do you as senior faculty protect Mm -hmm. or assist your junior faculty to ensure that they're on the path to tenure and just to maintain a balanced lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. How do you, yeah, 
Absolutely. I think that'd be a great question. And in particular with it as well, thinking about questions to ask programs, what are their goals, right? Where are they at currently? Where would they see a junior faculty having to step up and in, in, in what ways, right, to help that goal and that program grow? And so, yeah, I think that would be really wise. Well, we both happen to be in our third year of these junior faculty roles. What have you learned from that experience that you would like to pass on as advice? Not to say like this is one size fits all, but yeah. as a, a word of encouragement or as you know, just a suggestion for those who might find themselves in a similar experience. Mm. I suppose I continue to, you know, try to challenge any hint of imposter syndrome that you might have. Have confidence and, and go for it. Um, but at the same time, I think being able to... Um, lean on yourself to get something done you know sometimes folks maybe want to form lots of writing groups or something and maybe they don't fall through and I think um, being intentional and uh, working towards that and I know some folks really have been um, really successful actually at forming like writing groups and getting heavy grants and publishing you know being powerhouses and that from that so that's you know, really wonderful, but I, th- I think kind of mapping it out, structuring it out, not being scared, and, and getting as much support and mentoring as you can, right? Not not sort of, it's kind of scary. You kind of think, oh gosh, am I, I need to have everything figured out. <laughs> Just, it's still growing, I suppose. That's what I would say. And make sure that where you end up is your fit, right? You know, feels good for you, so. I definitely want to thank you for your time and thank for you sharing your insights and experiences. As we wrap up, I just want to ask the question that I end every interview by asking, and that's just to think back to a time in your life where maybe you thought about something in a certain way or you were going through a situation and the way that you were proceeding wasn't necessarily the best way for you. So you step back and you reframe that reality and it had a positive impact on that time and that experience and how you proceeded forward. I suppose sometimes you can feel... um especially maybe in a, you know, a novice faculty member, um, if you say, want to speak up, if you disagree on something or, or what have you. And, um, sometimes, you know, maybe that doesn't always go (laughs) super well, um, or you're nervous about it. Um, and so I guess reframing that, um, around assertiveness, that it's okay to be assertive and, and disagree with a colleague and still be able to repair that later in a, you know, a professional way. Um, and it's not really, again, thinking we have to be just perfect things. I think that kind of continuously is part of me. And again, still trying to reframe and make sure I'm in a state of wanting to stay curious, wanting to learn, because sometimes that can get when you're tired, you're starting to burn out, maybe you can co- sort of see less value in maybe attending a, you know, a conference or something. And so for me, I really try to shift my perspective and challenge myself to remain curious and know that I still have gobs to grow. <laughs> so I guess that would be those current ones I try to practice consistently. The Reframe is a production of the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join me next month on The Reframe.